Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. Remember, these places that talk about father and son in this chapter actually are more his predecessor, not his actual father. Predecessor had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called Loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, remember your predecessor, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, again predecessor, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, that's 
successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you lifted, have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson, and this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, like I said earlier, hopefully with all the historical background we dealt with at the end of last week's study, and if you're listening right now online, if you were here, here tonight and you weren't there last, here last week, go to the end of last week's study on our website and you'll hear, listen to that, all that historical background that happened between chapter 4 and chapter 5, and that brings a lot more understanding to this passage tonight. Now, Remember, at this point, Cyrus and the Medo-Persian army are damming up the Euphrates River. Remember, we talked about that last week and attacking the city as these things are happening. Remember, while this party is going on outside the walls of the city, the Medo-Persian army and Cyrus are, are damming up the Euphrates River so that his army can go through the dry riverbed under the outer wall. They're going in, and of course, as you, as you heard last week, people from within the city open the inner gates and let them in. Now... Because of Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, and historical evidence, we know now that this episode happens on October 12, 539 B.C. This is the night that Belshazzar was killed and the Babylonian Empire came to an end. Now, I didn't bring this out last week in the Wednesday night study. I did on Tuesday and I forgot to do it on Wednesday. So I'm going to tell you something that I meant to tell you last week that'll be helpful for us later on in our study. But for years, scholars, and I put that in quotes, have argued in years past that one of the reasons why Daniel is not accurate, and they don't believe that Daniel actually wrote this, because as you know, they always try to refute how much prophecies in it, and there's no way Daniel could know these things. One of the things they used to say was there is no historical evidence of anyone named Belshazzar being king in Babylon. If you look at all the historical records, you would find that there was never a king named Belshazzar who was king of Babylon. Actually, in the last so many years, we've come to realize through archaeological digs and different things, they've come to find a lot of historical evidence that there was a king named Belshazzar in Babylon, and he was the son of Nabonidus, as we looked at last week, and he became co-regent with his father since Nabonidus spent most of his time out and doing, you know, he was partying with his wife in another house that he built and all this kind of stuff. Actually, they found a lot of historical evidence now. Years ago, they'd say, there's no evidence that there was ever a Belshazzar as king of Babylon. The Bible's not true. But guess what? Over time, the Bible's been proven to be true. That's going to be important for you later on in our study, so keep that in mind. Now, so my question I'm going to ask you tonight is this. Do you think Belshazzar knew 
that while he's partying, Cyrus and his army are closing in and attacking the city? Actually, he did. Well, there's a lot of evidence that he probably did, and here's why. Chances are real good that he did. Oh, if you go ahead and go and look at the historical evidence, only days before this, key cities had fallen to Cyrus, and Belshazzar had to have known. Remember, we talked about last week, the Babylonian kingdom has been crumbling little by little ever since Nebuchadnezzar was king. And as that was going on, and they were losing a lot of their territory, what pretty much remained at this point was the city of Babylon and its fortress and its walls. But just a few days prior to this, again, that's why I could tell you what day that happened, because there's historical evidence that what day Belshazzar was killed and the Babylonian Empire came to an end. Just a few days before that, some key cities in Babylon had been defeated by Cyrus and his army. And I can promise you, chances are real good Belshazzar knew what was going on outside. So the question is, why throw a lavish party in the midst of all this? Why throw a lavish party when you know that the enemy's attacking the city? I'm going to give you three options. There are probably more, but I'm just going to give you three possibilities tonight. One would be to try to cheer up everyone and make everything not look so bad. Boost morale. You know, hey, guys, it looks bad out there, but we're fine. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 1 again, look at what it says. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And look, he drank in front of them. He not only gave them wine to drink, he drank with them. Hey, guys, I'm, I'm not worried about this. I'm the guy that's in charge. I'm, I'm the head of our army. I know what's going on out there. I'm not worried about it. If I'm not worried about it, you shouldn't be worried about it. Let's just all cheer up. There's also another possibility. Some people try to numb themselves to things that they don't like. You ever seen people do that over the years? When they're going through struggles, they try to numb themselves. I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture that you may not know is there. Go to Proverbs 31. Go to Proverbs 31 and look at verses 4 through 7. In Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7, it says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is dying, perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Isn't that interesting? Here's, the scripture says it's not wise for kings. It's not right for kings to drink because they're in charge and they need to be in full control of their faculties. And if you know anything about alcohol, it makes you lose control of your faculties. And it's not wise for kings to do that. But then it goes on and it says, but if there's someone that's dying, give them strong drink to ease the pain as they die. By the way, I actually believe this is where the Jewish practice and the Roman practice of giving dying people wine was. Let me take you to Mark 15. Go to Mark 15 and look at what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Go to Mark chapter 15. Look at verses 21 through 23. We do this in a sense now. We don't use wine or alcohol, but we give people morphine when they're in hospice, don't we? Look at, look at Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 23. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him, this is Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Here he's offered wine, but it had a painkiller mixed into it. And when Jesus knew that it had the painkiller, he didn't take it. Would he have been wrong to do so? No. The scripture says, give strong drink to someone who's perishing, someone who's dying. But that's one thing about Jesus in this situation. He took the full brunt of our sin. He took it fully. He didn't take the painkiller. He took the full brunt. You can't say, well, he took the easy way out. No, he, he took the hard way out. But now go to John 19. You'll see that Jesus did actually drink wine while he was on the cross. Go to John chapter 19. Look at verses 28 through 30. John chapter 19, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. At the end of Jesus' time on the cross, at the beginning, when they offered him painkiller while he was on the cross, he said no. But at the end, to fulfill scripture, Psalm 22 said that his tongue was going to stick to the roof of his mouth. He said, I thirst. And when he, he said that, they took some sour wine, put it on a sponge and put it to his mouth and he drank it. Now, it's interesting also, I don't know how much you know about the medical condition of what's going on to Jesus at this time, but because of the severe loss of blood, you can understand how thirsty he would be because that's where your body gets its liquid from. And because of the severe loss of blood, he's so thirsty, he probably can't even hardly get the words, I thirst out. Psalm 22 said that his tongue would stick to the roof of his mouth. Chances are he took that last little bit of sour wine so that he could get his final words out, which are, it's finished, to tell us I paid in full. So why are they throwing this party? Maybe to boost morale, say everything's going to be fine. It could be just to numb themselves to what's going on. But I also think this might be a last ditch effort to call upon the gods that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had spurned by having them worship the moon god. Remember last week I told you at the end of our time how his father, Nabonidus, had kind of pulled him away from the worship of the other gods, Marduk and Bel and all these other gods, and had started to have them worship the moon god, and the priests of Marduk didn't like that and all this. And, of course, because Nabonidus wasn't there in Babylon as much and he would leave his son in charge as a co-regent, a lot of time people were all upset and grumbling about it. And I wonder if... Belshazzar's thought isn't, well, let's calm everybody down and let's go back to worshiping the gods we worshiped before when everything was fine. And maybe they're even calling out to those gods. Go back to Daniel chapter 5. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Maybe they're at the same time saying, maybe these gods will help us in the midst of this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Listen closely. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
Go to chapter 5, look at verses 22 and 23. Look what Daniel says to him. In verse 22 of Daniel 5, And you, his predecessor, or sorry, successor Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Actually, all of a sudden now we see a fourth possibility of what's going on. The first possibility is that he's just trying to boost morale. Hey, guys, I'm drinking too. I ain't worried about it. You shouldn't be worried about it. It could be that they're numbing themselves to what's inevitable and there's nothing they can do. Say to decide, let's just ignore it and get drunk. It also could be, and I think part of it is, that he was calling on those gods to help. Hey, that's when we were, when, when, when we were Babylon and known to be Babylon, we used to worship these other gods. Maybe we'll just start calling on them again. Part of probably what happened is, is my dad, Nabonidus, had them worship the moon god Sin. Maybe that's probably what's happened. Let's call them them again. And then on top of that, we see a fourth thing. Who's behind all this wickedness? Satan. I can see Satan taking an opportunity to thumb his nose at God, where all of a sudden Belshazzar gets the idea after he drinks the wine, he goes, man, this tastes pretty good, but it would taste even better if we took it out of the Jewish temple vessels that we, we, we captured. And it's a way of thumbing their nose at God. L- let me say something to you folks. Even though Satan knows he's defeated, he still attempts to despise God. It's an amazing thing about him. Go with me real quick to Revelation chapter 12. Let me show you a couple of things in Revelation real quick about what is still to come. In Revelation chapter 12, we'll look at verses 7 through 12. What I'm about to read to you happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. For years, people have said, well, God can't be in the presence of sin. Yes, he can. Satan's in his presence every day, accusing the brethren. Remember in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, when God, the angels appeared before God, Satan came with them. God, by the way, if God can't be in the presence of sin, he can't be everywhere. Like the Bible says he is. He can be in the presence of sin. Look at chapter 12, though, verse 7. Now, at the midpoint of the tribulation, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. He's not allowed to go back and forth between heaven and earth anymore at that time. It's going to happen. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. When he's cast out of heaven finally down to the earth and all the demons are going to go with him. He's going to be doing some horrific, horrific things on the earth. And he knows that his time is short. He knows he's being cast into hell. But even though he knows he's defeated, even though he knows he's being cast into hell. Do you see any repentance here? No, he's going to do as much damage as he can, even though he knows he's defeated. Go to Revelation 16, though. You may be a little surprised at what the reaction of the world's going to be in the second half of the tribulation. 
Many people are going to be saved during the tribulation period. I believe the Bible teaches without question the church will be taken before that. But there will be many thousands upon thousands of tribulation saints, those who don't take the mark of the beast, which happens at the midpoint on. But listen to what happens in the second half of the tribulation. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels. These are the seven angels that have the seven bowls of God's wrath. And pour out, telling the angels, go and pour out the, onto the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, look closely, who is and who was. What's missing? And is to come. Now, some of your translation might have still is to come. But actually, the earliest manuscripts don't have here. I could show you a couple of places. We're not going to do that now. That's not why we're looking at it. But there's a, the earliest manuscripts don't have and who is to come in a couple of places in Revelation. Why? Because at this point, it's the end of the tribulation period. And Jesus is getting his kids kingdom back and his earth back. And he is returning. It's all tied together. At this point, it is so short as to the time that's left on the earth, they just don't even say, and who is to come anymore, because he's coming now. But look at what the reaction of the angels in charge of the water say. They say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed their, the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them the blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God, the God almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. By the way, the world today is talking about global warming. They're going to get to have a one world government during the tribulation period and they're going to get to make all their green laws and they're going to be able to control everything. And God's going to say, you'll see who's in control of everything. Let me just remind you real quickly that when God showed back up, showed up and had his face to face with Job. Remember, Job was saying, I want to face to face with God. And God shows up and God says, hey, you're, you, I understand you want to ask me a few questions. You can ask me anything you want. I'm going to ask you a couple ones real quick. But then after that, ask anything you want. And God pretty much says to him, you go on for four chapters. And in that, he says, can you control the weather? You go read it. You'll see it. He says, can you control the weather? And the answer is no. But they don't repent or give him the glory. Look at the fifth angel. He pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. By the way, that's Babylon. The, the, the Antichrist kingdom is going to be centered in Babylon during the tribulation period for sure. People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean people spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the almighty behold I'm coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it's done and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. 
So great was that earthquake, the great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Here they are, knowing that this is being done by God. And their attitude is to thumb their nose at God and to curse God. By the way, did anybody catch that at the end of the tribulation period, the river Euphrates is going to be dried up so that Babylon can be destroyed? Does anybody remember how Babylon was defeated and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was defeated? And, and of course, Belshazzar at this time, we read it and we studied it last week. They dammed up the river Euphrates so the army could go under the city walls and the dry riverbed. Folks, that's a little bit of foreshadowing of what's to come. But as they're partying, a hand appears in the room and he writes an inscription on the wall. The king doesn't know what it is and the whole thing really scares him. By the way, it actually scares him more than Cyrus scares him. Did you notice that? It scares him more than Cyrus scares him. Let me just tell you, this finger that shows up in the room has been mentioned before in the Bible. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 31. Go to Exodus chapter 31 and look at verse 18. Let me show you where this this finger, this hand that showed up and wrote with a finger has been seen before. Exodus 31 verse 18. And he, God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. God wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets with his own finger. But actually, this finger of God has been referenced even prior to this. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 7. Now, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 7, let me say something to you. Belshazzar doesn't understand. He's scared to death of this hand that's come into the room and is written on the wall, and he doesn't know what it says or it's his interpretation. So he calls in his enchanters, his magicians, his sorcerers, his wise men. And they, again, have we not seen this pattern before with Nebuchadnezzar a few times and now with Belshazzar? Let me say something to you that you really need to hear, and I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. It sure appears like these enchanters and Chaldeans and wise men, sorcerers, are all pretty inept, right? I don't want you to take them lightly. I don't want you to take them lightly at all because actually they have been kept from understanding these things by God so that God can reveal who he is through those who know him. They don't know him, but don't think for a second because they're unable to do this all the time that they're inept. Let me say something to you, folks. People that delve into the magic arts and sorcery and witchcraft have real connections with the demonic realm and you're never to play with it. You have to stay clear away from it. Stay away from horoscopes and, and, and astrology and stay away from Ouija boards and all this kind of stuff and psychics and the stupid shows that are out there where they're ghost hunting or talking to the dead. Listen, I'm going to show you from Scripture, it's real. But the people they're talking to aren't people you want to be talking to. Go to Exodus chapter 7, look at verses 9 through 12. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. But were they able to throw their staffs down and have them come snakes too? They sure were. Go to chapter 7, verse 19. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the, all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of the Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. By the way, if you ever do a study of the 10 plagues in Egypt and parallel it with what's going to happen in the tribulation period, again, a lot of foreshadowing. But again, were there magicians able to turn water to blood? Yes, they were. Go to Exodus chapter 8, look at verses 5 through 7. Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, guys, don't take them lightly. Don't play with that stuff. Don't think it'll be funny to go talk to a psychic and just see what they have to say. You're delving into realms the Bible says stay away from. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. I, I want to bring up a point. I'm not sure it was in chapter 2 or chapter 3 uh, when Nebuchadnezzar was shown the statue mm -hmm. and then a finger brought out a stone. Yes, exactly. You, there it is again. Yes, it, that was carved by no human hand. That was Jesus. Yet again, pointing to it. Again, what I want you to understand is... is, is well, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to invite Jesus into your heart to live within you? It's also, it's also possible to invite a demon to live inside you. And you open those doors by looking at spirit guides and all this stuff. Yeah, they look inept. Don't play with this stuff, guys. But look what happens next in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Isn't that interesting? God allowed them to do their demonic stuff to a point. You study here, they're not able to do it anymore. And they said, guys, um, we can't do this by our voodoo, if you will. This is God. Go ahead. Is acupuncture evil? Uh, again, I'm going to say this to you. I can't say that it is or isn't. 
There comes certain things like that. And I would just tell you, if the Spirit of God gives you a peace about do it, do it. Romans 14 says, each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Romans 14 verse 22 says, uh, we have to be real careful that we don't start making all these rules about this, that, and the other. There are things that the Bible says very clearly stay away from. Acupuncture is not one of those things that's mentioned. Now, there are people that start getting into whether or not we should celebrate Christmas because of its pagan or, you know, and Easter. And the Bible says that every one of us, when it comes to these areas of dispute, don't be judging each other about whether or not they see it like you see it. But when the Bible says witchcraft, sorcery, those types of things, worshiping the gods, getting your directions from the stars, seeking insight from someone who's dead and having them give you, that's the stuff the Bible clearly says, don't go there. So when it comes to acupuncture, some might say, well, because of its origins, and the Bible says we're free in Christ. We're not under law. If you have a peace, do it. If you have no peace, you're sinning if you do it, the Bible says. Anything not done by faith is sin. So in answer to your question, that's between you and God. And nobody else can, needs to tell you whether it's right or wrong. Okay? But these magicians all of a sudden realize God's doing this. God's doing this. Go back to chapter 5 of Daniel and look at verse 6 and verse 9. And I want you to notice again how Scripture keeps pointing out how Belshazzar is afraid Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. I don't know if you caught this or not. In another way of saying it, he sobered up quick. Look at verse 9. Then the king, king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. I'm going to point something out to you, and I'm going to take a little second to chase this rabbit. I think it's worth chasing here. If John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, who wrote the gospel of John, who was the disciple whom Jesus loved as he wrote about himself in his gospel, who lived with Jesus and walked with him, he leaned against Jesus' breast. If John, who knew Jesus well, while he was on the island of Patmos, according to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, hears a voice speaking to him on the island, and he turns around and he sees Jesus in his glorified form. If John fell as though dead, afraid, and of course Jesus puts his hand on him and says, don't be afraid, get up. If John had that type of fear when he saw the holy Jesus, and John had a right relationship with him and knew him, how much more do you think those whom Jesus won't say to them, don't be afraid, are going to be afraid. And there needs to be. Now, Bible says very clearly that we as his children should not be afraid of punishment. First John chapter 4, verse 19 talks about that very clearly. That those of us who are in a right relationship with God shouldn't worry about punishment because he's already fully punished Jesus. That kind of fear is not what we should have. But we should never lose a reverence of the fact that he is almighty, holy God. And I want to just show you real quick how scary it's going to be in the days to come for the wicked. Go to Revelation chapter 15. I like it when somebody says, the first thing I'm going to tell Jesus when I get to heaven is. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Many people have said, I've got a few questions when I see Jesus. Uh, trust me. Job already tried that. And when Job saw him, he said, you know what? I don't, I don't have any more questions. <laughs> Go to Revelation 15. Look at verses 5 through 8. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, remember them, clothed in pure bright linen, 
with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. At that point, we already read chapter 16, when they all pour out all at once, one after another, boom, boom, boom. That's all going to be happening at the very, very end of the tribulation period. And everybody's going to know it's God. When those angels go out from the holy, heavenly temple of God, God's wrath is so severe at that time on man's sin, nobody goes anywhere near him. Remember, he's being worshipped 24 hours a day by the, the elders and the the four living creatures and the angels. There's this continual worship going on, but at this point, it gets quiet. And nobody goes anywhere near the throne. Go to Revelation 14. Look at verses 9 through 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, listen closely, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up, how long? Forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. By the way, hell is forever and ever. Go ahead. Excuse me. What mm -hmm. is this we don't know. And you don't have to worry about it if you're a follower of Christ and you're in the church. We're not going to be here when that happens. The, the, the mark won't be understood until the Antichrist is revealed. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist won't be revealed until the church is gone. So don't worry about what it is. People have tried to say the vaccine's the mark. No. You're not going to get tricked into the, the mark. It's, it's, an, it's a willful decision that those people are going to make at that time. And they're going to be choosing to give their allegiance to this individual in this kingdom. And by doing so, they're going to let him mark them. You know? Kind of interesting, Adrian Rogers years ago, while he was still on the earth and preaching, he was preaching through Revelation, and he talked about how Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 3, I've given you, to the believers, I've given you a new name. And then he points out the fact that Satan's going to give you a number, and God gives you a name. Go to Revelation 20, though. Look what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment. By the way, this is at the end of the tribulation period, the end of the millennial kingdom. This is the judgment of all the wicked dead throughout all eternity. Now, Satan and his false prophet have already been cast into the lake of fire, where they're going to be tormented day and night. Look at chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Why in the world is the earth and the sky trying to get away from God? Well, he's angry right now. And as we read earlier, people are going to re receive full strength, the cup of his anger. Isn't it corrupt also? I'm sorry? Isn't it corrupt also? What do you mean? Uh, because of sin, isn't it? Uh... Well, the earth, the earth is going to be totally destroyed at the end of the tribulation period, and then the millennial kingdom is going to be totally destroyed, and then a new heaven and new earth will be built after that. But look closely what's going to happen here. I saw the dead raised, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me give you one more. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. The scripture says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, some people say, wait a minute, Jim, that that sounds like Christians could lose their salvation. No, that's not what it's talking about at all. If you actually were to go in the verses just prior to that, look at your Bibles. They probably have the heading that talk about the full assurance of faith, how we can boldly go into the throne of God because of Jesus. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear his judgment. When he's talking to here, he's talking to those who have heard, who know, who have rejected the gospel. To go on sinning deliberately is to know how to be saved, have the Spirit of God open your eyes, and you reject it. There's no other sacrifice for sins. And if people who set aside the law of Moses, you know how it was read? Those who rejected the law of Moses and just ignored it, set it aside. If they were judged severely without mercy by just two or three witnesses, how much worse do you think will be the consequences of those who... Trample underfoot the Son of God and the blood of the covenant. Listen closely, which sanctified them. That's interesting. That sure sounds like a Christian again. Listen closely. Jesus died on the cross for the whole world. The moment that he died, he said it's paid for. To tell us die, it's finished. Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean the whole world is going to heaven. They have to individually respond by faith and receive it. But it's been paid for. And if you know that Jesus paid for your sins and you have had it already paid for, but you reject that, you've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, which was for you to be sanctified. You've outraged the spirit of grace, which called you. By the way, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The only sin that wasn't covered by Jesus' death on the cross is when the spirit of God draws you to salvation and you say no. Folks, I don't want us to get to a point where we take lightly the fear of God. Just in this instance here, we see Belshazzar is way more afraid of God and what's going on than he is Cyrus. And we as Christians need to not worry about him punishing us. He'll never punish you. He's already fully poured all of his wrath on, for your sin on Jesus. But at the same time, let's never res- lose respect for him and a holy understand of his holiness. And also, let's pray for the world, which is going to, if they continue to reject the salvation that's been offered, if they continue to reject it, they're going to receive a fear we can't even fathom. Folks, the gospel is not God's mad at you, but if you ask him to forgive you, he'll change his mind. The gospel is this. God loves you so much, he already sent his son to die for you. 
that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The message of the gospel is to tell the world your sins have already been paid for by Jesus. All you have to do is receive it. It's just like someone saying, I've paid your bill. And you say, nah, go tell the waiter, I'll pay it myself. Go get your money back. That'd be foolish, wouldn't it? How much more foolish would it be to reject this gospel? Now, most likely this queen that comes into the room is most likely Belshazzar's mother, possibly from history, a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she comes in and she speaks calming wisdom. I'm not going to chase this rabbit. I'm just going to make a statement here. It would do us wise men to listen to the women in our lives once in a while when they speak truth. Just ask Pilate. Just ask Nabal when his wife Abigail tried to tell him, look, listen to me. Don't do this. David wants to kill you because of your being a jerk. I'm not going to go much further because I don't want you wives thinking you're right all the time. But at the same time, there are many times in the scriptures that we see that the women had an insight, and the men didn't listen. I'll just let the Spirit of God take it from there. Now, interesting, these words that were written by this hand, the finger of God, were written in Aramaic. The Bible says it was written in Aramaic, which was a language that most everybody there should have known. It was a common trading language. Why couldn't they know what it said? We might have an understanding why we wouldn't know the they wouldn't know the interpretation, but why didn't they know what it said? Now, this is pure speculation, and one of the commentaries I've looked at, and I kind of lean toward he might be right, is chances are it was written without the vowels. A lot of Hebrew writing was without vowels. And so many, many, and by the way, probably was written from right to left, many, many tekel peres, would look like this without the vowels written from, if we wrote, read it left to right, it would say S-R-P-L-K-T-H-N-M-H-N-M. By the way, if I were to come in today and give you all a quiz, and all the quiz had on it was S-R-P-L-K-T-H-N-M-H-N-M, and you had to tell me what it meant, how would you do? Probably not too good. Even if it was a, there were words you knew. God gave Daniel the ability to decipher it, plus the meaning of the writing, which he interpreted to, to Belshazzar, which we've already seen, how he says, you know, you, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, your kingdom's come to an end and all this. But you know what God showed me last night while I was reading this and I hadn't seen in all my study? Was Daniel in the room when all the partying was going on and they were drinking from the vessels and praising the gods of wood and stone? He wasn't there. They had to call him in. Yet when he comes in, the Spirit of God is in such control of his mouth, he tells them everything that went on in the room. You guys drank from these vessels. You praised the gods of wood, stone, all this stuff. He didn't see that. He didn't know what they were saying, but God gave him the understanding, again, revealing that God's the one who reveals mysteries. How come in Daniel 5.17, though? Go to Daniel 5.17. Daniel says... I don't want the robe, the gold chain. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now jump down to verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Looks like he said, I don't want it. Then he took it. Well, the answer is actually kind of easy. When he said, I don't want it, it was his way of saying, I'm not doing this for the money. I don't care about what you have. I don't get what I get from you. I get what I get from God. Remember, we talked about that way back in Daniel chapter one. It's been his MO from the beginning. But also, what does Daniel know is going to happen to Belshazzar within 24 hours? He's going to be dead. And there's going to be a whole new kingdom. So that guy can flap his gums all he wants about who's in charge now and all this stuff. There's going to be a whole new king and a whole new kingdom come in the next 24 hours. And whatever has been bestowed on Daniel probably don't mean anything in the days to come. If he's going to be in charge in the next kingdom, that's going to have to be given to him by the next king. So in other words, if it makes you feel good, I'll take the robe, I'll take the thing, but I'm not worrying about it because I already know what's going to happen with you in 24 hours. So now's not the time to worry about that stuff. I'm just going to say this to you as a, an aside. Because Daniel knew what was going to happen next, he wasn't too worried about the minutia. Let me ask you a question. Do we not know from Scripture how it's all going to play out? Hasn't God promised that he would take care of us, that he'd set a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil? Hasn't he promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us? Hasn't he told us, even though there'll be struggles, I'll be there with you, I'll walk you through it? Don't we know this? Then why are Christians getting so caught up about whether or not someone should be vaccinated or not vaccinated? Why are we getting caught up in the minutiae of masks or no masks? Do you realize... Some of the things I'm going to have to deal with on this trip, preaching trip that I'm going around the country is actually going to churches and trying to get them back together because they're fighting over this stuff. And we've gotten so caught up in the minutiae, we've lost sight of the fact that of all people in the midst of this chaos, we should be the calm people who can walk into the room and say, there is a God and he's in control. And I don't worry, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, we don't have to answer you in this matter king. Well, I'm not worried about your gifts. I'm not worried about all this stuff because I'm living with an insight, with an understanding of someone who's greater. And I'm not worried about all this stuff. And I just want to encourage you. Take a deep breath. I don't know what's going to happen in the weeks between now and when we come back together in the first week of June. But I pray that between now and then you'll just relax and let God kind of walk you through what it means to walk with him. And don't get caught up on minutia. Go ahead. That's it. That's it. But you'd be amazed how many people have made it their purpose now to tell everybody whether they're supposed to be vaccinated or not. Or whether or not they're. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm seeing churches split over this. Relax. Relax. We're getting caught up in all the wrong stuff. Now, as we close tonight. We need to wrestle with something, and we got nine minutes to deal with it, and I think we can do it. Go to Daniel 5.31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, remember how I told you at the beginning of our study that for a long time, quote-unquote scholars said there's no historical evidence of any king in Babylon named Belshazzar. And it wasn't until years later, within the last so many years, we've started to realize, hey, guess what? There was. Well, right as of right now, there is no historical evidence of anyone outside of Scripture, of anyone named Darius the Mede, 
being in charge of Babylon after the Babylonian kingdom. Now, there are some possibilities. By the way, uh, I'm not going to take the time to read them all to you, but I could show you one, two, three, four, five, six other times besides Daniel 5.31 in the rest of Daniel that Darius the Mede is mentioned. I need to show you one of them, though, because it's going to be important in what we deal with just a little bit. Go to Daniel 6, verse 28. It says, Daniel 6, verse 28, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's going to be important later on in our explanations as to why. Right now, though, if you were to talk to people that want to refute the Bible and refute Daniel, they'll say there's no evidence of anyone named Darius the Mede ever being in power in Babylon. Well, one of the options is no such person ever did exist, so the scripture's inaccurate. By the way, we're going to chuck that one, aren't we? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. And just because we might not have in human historical evidence that, if it's in the Bible, it, there was a person named Darius the Mede. And he even told us how old he was when he became king. And just like there was no, for years, Belshazzar, although there was, and it's been proven, the Bible to be true, once again, in time, this will be proven to be true as well. So we're chucking that one. Actually, for years, as people tried to say the world was flat, the Bible said it was round all along. Now, there's another possibility, and is that this term Darius is actually an honorary title, and that Darius the Mede is just another name for King Cyrus of Persia. Some people have actually tried to take Daniel 6.28 that we just read and have it read, actually, it says that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, also known as Cyrus of Persia. But that's really not how it reads. It really does say Darius and Cyrus, like they're two different individuals. There's a third option. Actually, there are actually, if you were to do our deep study, there's actually a few other options I'm not going to get into. Some people say it was some guy named Guberu, or another one says Uguru. Or, I'm not going to get into that because there's not much evidence and it's not worth chasing. But I think there's a third option, and I lean in this direction. And throughout the rest of the study of Daniel, that's, you're going to see it play out. I actually think that Darius the Mede was an actual person who was given authority to rule in Babylon by Cyrus. Look again at Daniel 5.31 and how it's worded. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Verse 31 now. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That word received, actually in the Aramaic here, actually means it was given to him by someone in authority over him. Someone in authority gave him the kingdom, gave him authority, so he received the kingdom. And when you put together that with Daniel 6.28, the fact that there is a Darius the Mede and Cyrus's reign coincided, it looks like that actually whoever Darius the Mede is, he's been given authority to rule over Babylon. And actually, if you do a little bit more historical study, you'll actually find that... that um, Cyrus did a lot of eastern campaigns and more wars after he defeated Babylon. He did a lot more stuff. There's really no way he could have stayed in Babylon and ruled over Babylon because he was out traveling. Chances are real good. Even though you can't find outside of scripture any reference to Darius the Mede, I believe Darius the Mede is an actual person whom Cyrus gave authority. He received the kingdom from him. He was 62 years old. And that's why Daniel 6, 28 says, Daniel prospered during his and Cyrus's reign. All right. That's all for now. Take a deep breath.
I love you. Go love Jesus and love each other, and we'll see you in a few weeks.